Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. This week on the show we have a royal flush when I talk to Jonathan Price, Elizabeth Debicki and Khalid Abdallah who play Prince Philip, Princess Diana and Dodie Al-Fayed respectively in the first part of the new and final season of Netflix's The Crown. And amid all that we review the new Barry Keoghan movie Saltburn and the new Todd Haynes movie May December. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. I hope you're doing well. I am well. My car passed the NCT. I have this very old red Volkswagen Golf, which I swear by, which my children go, oh no, not daddy's car. But it passed again. There's no feeling like it. The guy comes out of the booth with, you know, this thing that's going to define your day. Has it passed? Has it failed? It passed. It's the small things, my friends. It's the small things. Now, this week in TV, we're going to get to the crown, obviously, but I want to quickly mention Louis Theroux, uh, who I used to be obsessed with, I think. Someone once said I looked vaguely like him and about... 15 years ago, I think I wanted to be him and I thought I was going to be the next Louis Theroux, but that didn't quite work out. But I I do think he's a remarkable talent and unique. As the years have gone on, maybe I've, you know, you know what you're going to get with Louis Theroux. He does it very well, but it's kind of, saying more of the same is a bit harsh. But you do know where you stand with Louis Theroux, but perhaps that's fine. At least he has an identifiable brand and I do enjoy that brand. And he is back on the BBC doing a series of interviews And I kind of enjoy his interviews more now than going off to meet kind of people on the fringes of society like he has done for a long time. I think that was starting to tire a bit, but he is sitting down with some very interesting people. And this week he spoke to Pete Doherty, the, well, they're still technically together in some fashion, but the front man of the bands, the Libertines and then Baby Shambles. Pete Doherty, in case you don't know, was and, well, isn't anymore according to this, but had a serious drug problem. He lived a very wild life when he was with the Libertines and was famously with going out with Kate Moss. Louis Theroux catches up with him now in 2023, living in France on the Normandy coast. Still now no longer on heroin, but still, according to this, occasionally enjoying alcohol. And at one point during the interview starts slugging rum, uh, which seems somewhat strange for someone in recovery, but he's working on it. He says, this was a fascinating watch. Uh, Troubling in some ways because Pete Doherty seems quite lost still, despite having cleaned up, despite now having a new baby in his life. Louis Theroux handled him brilliantly, I felt, because he kind of stayed out of his way, asked a few pertinent questions, obviously, about his life and times, but let him kind of reveal himself, uh, which he did so in pretty forthright fashion. And Louis ends up going swimming with him at the end uh, in the French coast, freezing cold. It was a great watch. Uh, It really was. And Louis Theroux, no one does it quite like him. I, I can't imagine any other host getting Pete Doherty to go swimming with him or or, or vice versa. So next week, Louis Theroux is talking to Joan Collins, which will be equally 
as interesting. So Louis Theroux, although I'm not as big a fan as I used to be, he still very much gets my vote. Now, also in TV this week, there is obviously this. The problem is, if you'd been there, it would have shown more than interest. It would have shown approval. But since he's not going to give her up, even in the absence of my approval, I don't want to be considered unkind because I'm not. No. Or for Camilla to be considered wicked because she's not. No, just inappropriate. Really? Still? Surely not. Yes. You don't think it's time for this discrimination to end? For us all to accept she is the love of his life? Yes, Imelda Staunton there and Jonathan Price playing Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip discussing their son, Prince Charles's relationship with Camilla Parker Bowles. This is a clip from the new and final season of The Crown. It landed this week. It's The final season is landing in two parts. You can just get f- the first four episodes so far. And they largely deal with Princess Diana, her death, and most importantly, her relationship with Dodie Al-Fayed. I'm going to be talking to the actors and actresses who play Diana and Dodie Al-Fayed after the break. But before that, I'm going to bring you the man who plays Prince Philip and has done since the last season, season five, the great Jonathan Price, whose career goes all the way back to Terry Gillingham uh, and Brazil, but recently people will have seen him in things like Game of Thrones, where he played the High Sparrow, the two popes on Netflix from a few years ago, where he played Pope Francis. He's a great British actor from Wales, of course, that sonorous voice. So I spoke to him about playing Prince Philip again in this final season of The Crown and a lot more besides. How are you? I'm good. Very nice to see you. You too. I had the pleasure of talking to you for the two popes, but it was just on the phone. So uh, you won't you won't remember that, but I do. Okay. Listen, uh, I can you know, give you the same answers if you want. You just make them about Prince Philip. <laughs> Let's see how that goes. Yes. Uh, talking of Prince Philip, you know there is this idea of him and I probably have it as well as this man who was out of time and and out of step with the modern world and all but the crown and particularly your portrayal of him maybe makes the case that at source he was just trying to protect his family and we see it a lot with his protection of the boys particularly and all that 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 was one of his motivations not just to you know live in an old world or whatever How, how do you see it Well, I think we explored that side of him uh, in series five, where he wasn't living in the the past, that he was a man who was always questing and uh, questioning um, and had lots of interests outside of the royal family and would have, if he'd not been part of the monarchy, if he'd hadn't married into it, he would have had a very different life. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I think what... Uh, what I discovered about him and the audience will in series six is um, that he was, the, yes, he's the head of the family. He's like the managing director of this company. And yeah. um, you see it in the, his, their treatment of uh, the news of Diana's death, where they, you see, you, as far as I'm concerned as an actor, you purposefully see a lack of emotion um, and he immediately starts thinking about protocol and that uh, there's, uh, we're, we're sorry, but she can't be accorded the, the dignity of a, a, yeah. a royal funeral and all that kind of thing. Um, 
which then prompts uh, and prompted um, that huge outcry from the public that they needed a different response. But they wanted the royal family to have the same emotional response of Diana that, uh, that they were having. Mm. And it's, it, I think it's quite valuable. You know, I, I remember having those feelings at the time. It was like, why the hell aren't they uh, coming out and saying how sorry they are and oh, it's awful. And, um, and, and to have the chance to, to show people what was going on behind the doors or what Peter Morgan assumes what was going yes. on behind the doors is uh, is very valuable i think yeah did the death of the queen not to be too morbid about it but did, did that hang over the filming in any way or was it was it did, maybe you guys are actors so you just you get on with it but i wonder did it give it i don't know a melancholy hue to proceedings no or? i think i i wasn't there i wasn't on set when uh it was announced she died and i wasn't i got on set about a week later but um no, it certainly didn't change uh, anything, really. But if, if anything happened, uh, to me especially, it strengthened the feeling that, yes, we dealt with her uh, with dignity and respect. And I think if we'd thought, oh, we have to do something different now sure. she's died, it would have said we, we, we'd got it wrong before. And I don't yeah. think we've ever got it wrong about any yeah. member of the royal family. Yeah, the you've probably heard this many times. So there's there's another part to the question, but one of the criticisms sometimes of the show is that it's not historically accurate, right? And what is apart from history, right? So I don't buy that either. But it's interesting. I was reading Andrew Marr in the Sunday Times recently, and he was very sympathetic to it for the most part. And he made this good point that you know this is teaching a whole new generation of people all about history, not just what happened to Princess Diana on but stiff from the 50s, accidents, when there was a terrible smog in London, all sorts of things, that it's a way for people to get into the past. It features Ireland even at times. Is that how you see it? Like that it's on the side of the angels when it comes to history? Maybe that's overstated yes, slightly, but that it, it, it is a good when it comes to historical remembrance. Yeah, I think it is. I, I think people don't uh, get enough credit for the for the historical accuracy that's uh, that's involved. I mean, they, what Peter seems to be doing is he's taking these enormous events in history, which we all know about as, as participants and viewers, and he is showing the emotional life of the characters involved in, at those times. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, it is. If, they, if there's any historical inaccuracy, it can only be their emotional response because that's all yeah. he's really writing about. Yeah. And I yeah. think, uh, yeah. uh, you know, history uh, isn't taught enough in our schools. I mean, there, there's a English history, yes, but, uh, you know, uh, English history involving Ireland, not so much. Uh, no. And Europe, not so much. Um, so... Yeah, I think there's a, there is a value to the crown in that respect. Mm. You've probably never done an interview where Game of Thrones hasn't been mentioned, and uh, this will be no exception. But I was talking to Liam Cunningham, who was also in Game of Thrones, and he said this great thing. He said his agent came to him and started talking about shadow babies, and, and he said, 
I'll stop you there. I, I, I just, I'm, I'm not into this. Like, this isn't my bag. And then he read it and he said he was reminded of Beckett and all sorts of things. And I, I was a big fan of that show. And I, I gathered that was kind of your response at the time. They came to you and you said something along the lines of, I don't do dragons. And then you read it and you kind of thought, wow. No, not true. No? Um, okay. <laughs> well, lucky you're here. Well, I um well, some of it's true. I was offered the pilot uh, oh, okay. way back. And I, then at the time, it, uh, it was, you know, um, what are they? I can't remember what they called it now. Um, Optioned or something like that? No, no, it's, uh, dragons and all that stuff, that kind of uh, filmmaking. And I thought, no, it doesn't interest me. Oh, yeah, um, fantasy, yeah. And I remember flicking through the script looking at, oh God, these names are all weird, and oh, so no, I don't, I don't want to do it. Uh, so then I, I passed on it, and then I waited until it had become an international, worldwide success, and I thought, yeah, all right, I'll, be, I'll, I'll have a part of that. But it was, it was based on their sending me the script the, with the character, the High Sparrow, and yeah. that, was the, that was the clincher. It was a very strong character, and it was, it took me back to my first agent when I left drama school, uh, advising me on how to look, look at a role and how to accept it uh, in terms of could the story exist without this character? And you know, that was mainly the thrust of it. Uh, does the character make things happen? Uh, and The High Sparrow did all those things. Yeah, um, it did, absolutely. Because what I hadn't done, and they hadn't written it was uh, the, the second series uh, where the character does you know I, I, I might have said this to you at the time but I, I based the character on uh, I hadn't played him then but I based him on Pope Francis that he was a man doing good for people washing people's feet and looking after the poor and then the wow. second series he switches to this uh, uh, violent homophobic cult leader so I, I don't know whether if I'd seen the second series, I'd have taken the whole thing on. I don't know. But it, did, it gave I'm, me a kind of innocence to go into that uh, second series. Yeah, yeah. And then finally, just on Two Popes, okay. I spoke to you the week it came out. Yeah. Did, did the Vatican, was, did word ever get to you what they thought of it? Well, we had a, um, prior to its release, we had a screening in Rome four members okay. of the Vatican. And uh, at the end of it, uh, we talked to, there was a, a very prominent archbishop whose name has gone out my head, but he was, uh, at the time, Francis's right-hand man. They were very close. And uh, two things happened. One, um, Fernando Morelos asked him, did he think we were too hard on the church? And he said, not hard enough. And the second thing was, could he have a DVD to take to Francis? Because he, I, he knew he'd like to see it. Okay. But we never got a review, sadly. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. There, there's still time. Well, listen, my apologies to Netflix. I'm, I'm way over time. But you are a beguiling presence. So uh, <laughs> thanks very much for talking to me, Jonathan. All right. Nice to talk to you again. Thanks. You too. Cheers. Bye-bye. Jonathan Price there, talking to me about playing the Pope, Pope Francis. And then before that, talking about playing Prince Philip in the new season of The Crown. After the break, the lady who's playing Princess Diana, Elizabeth Becky.
Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now before the break, I was talking to Jonathan Price, who plays Prince Philip in The Crown. We move now to Princess Diana, played in season five and in the new season, season six, by Elizabeth DeBecky, the great Australian actress who's been in all sorts of things, from Guardians of the Galaxy to the Christopher Nolan movie Tenet. Uh, she looks incredibly like Princess Diana when she is in full Diana Gear and I had a chat to her earlier in the week. I spoke to Emma Corrin um, <laughs> two seasons ago, I guess it is now, and I was saying to her, my God, did people all your life say to you, you look just like Princess Diana? And then I didn't necessarily think that about you. And then I watched part one and it's, it's spine tingling. It's like she's in the room, God rest her. Was this a thing people had ever said to you before or were you also transfixed by your own image when you saw what they'd done to you? It wasn't something that people had said. The first time I caught a, an inkling of it was when I auditioned for um, a really s small part in season two, which I didn't mm -hmm. get. And I, I started to hear whispers along the crown grapevine that maybe they you know, were thinking about Diana. That was the first time I had ever considered it. And I remember then telling that to my little sister who was like on her computer at the time and she, she Googled an image of Diana and then she Googled an image of me and she put them together and went, Huh. Ah, I, I was like, oh, yeah, I guess. You know, I just never had considered it um, for many reasons. May maybe also because of the way that I just myself sort of idealized her, her beauty, her image, the luminosity, the history, the legacy. To, you know, I never thought, you know who I could play? <laughs> when you saw yourself, I mean, I took, you don't go around looking at yourself all day, I guess. But Surely were not. you kind of, wow, you know, this is like, were you kind of taken aback? I know acting, it's a bit different. I'm looking at you, you're looking at yourself. It's a world apart, but it seems so on the money. Yeah, well, I think the thing is that the, the process to create that look was, is, is um, there's a lot of fittings, a lot of wig fittings, and they take a long time. And when you first begin, you look very far away from the thing that you're getting to. So it's this incremental process of, and I'm not kidding when I say it's like four people standing around a wig and one bit gets snipped off and then everyone steps back and looks at it and then snips a little bit. It's this very gentle process to create, um, to, to, to make the effect that is, in, you know, eventually made. Mm -hmm. And then it's all the other layers of, of makeup tests, camera tests. But the very first time I was fully made up for a camera test for season five, I remember looking in the mirror and feeling, I didn't really know what I felt about it. And I walked out of the corridor and as I walked down the corridor, the people who were sort of coming out or the ADs who were coming to look for me, everybody sort of got a little bit of a, I think they got a bit spooked. So that's when I, it was more for me playing her because I, you know, as an actor, I see myself, that's, you know, my, I can't trick myself, thank God. But it was more that um, people around me always responded in such a kind of visceral way that I, that was really helpful for my, mm. my confidence, I suppose. I thought, well, it's, I guess it's working. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. it, it certainly works. And, and tell me this, you mentioned the history and all, but my understanding is you were seven when she tragically passed away. Now you're Australian, like, 
Irish people. We have an interesting relationship with the monarchy over the years. Did she loom large in your young life or was it was it too distant or like do you remember even hearing about that when you were seven or is it only retrospectively you think back on that uh no i well i i've i've said that i remembered i distinctly remember watching my mother watch the funeral procession that was a that was um the first memory i have of the impact that Mm. this person had on the world but I do also remember being, because just like in the UK and well, all over the world, in Australia, she was also on the front of every woman's magazine all the time. And so, you know, when you're this, this high and you're in the supermarket checkout line, her face is staring back at you a lot. And I, I really do remember that face. And mm. what a magical concept a princess is, you're, you know, when you're five or six it's it's a yeah. a being from another land who is just possesses this incredible beauty and you know she's obviously very important and so i guess i had a vague concept but it was really the funeral and and uh, also I, um as i've mentioned before it was seeing um i distinctly remember watching her boys in that funeral procession and yeah. trying to sort of understand in my seven-year-old brain the loss of their mother, you know, that really stuck with me at the time. Tell me this, if Wikipedia is to be believed, and and who wouldn't believe it, your mother has Irish heritage. Is that correct? And can you tell me where she's from or how much you know about that? Yes, well, uh, that is true. And and, um, I did one of those hilarious and I guess accurate um, uh, DNA tests once, and I was an, an astonishing amount. There's an yeah, I have a lot of Irish in me. Um, County Mayo and County Clare, for oh, okay. something forty-five percent. Some I went. Oh, I guess we are quite Irish. So yeah, that's a lot of Irish. It's a lot of yeah. Irish, and the, and the rest <laughs> of it is Polish. So I went okay. There's a lot of potatoes in uh, in my ancestors' lives. Yeah, well, there, there are worse mixes than Irish and Polish, you know. It's true. Uh, I'll take it. Yeah, I'm so proud. you should. Continued success, and thanks a lot for talking Thank to me. Thank you so much. Have a nice day. Elizabeth Debecki there, talking about Irish and Polish roots, and of course, playing Princess Diana in the new season of The Crown, which is now on Netflix. The first part of it, anyway. The first four episodes. Now, next I want to bring you a chat with the actor Khalid Abdali, who plays Dodie Fayed in the new season of The Crown. And of course, Dodie Fayed was the man, the son of Mohammed Al-Fayed, the owner of Harrods, who tragically also died in the car with Princess Diana. And in a lot of ways, I don't want to say he was written out of history, but the huge amount of the focus was on Princess Diana. So I was very interested to hear uh, how Khalid Abdallah, who plays Dodie, fired in the new season of The Crown, approached that. Take a listen to this. I, I was thinking, you know, there's some scenes in this and it's like, oh my God, I, I remember that. Like, 
on the yacht where Princess Diana is sitting there and yeah. you're not far behind or, or even walking into the Ritz and things like that. And it's like history writ large. I know it's acting and all, but did you, at times were you kind of taken by the surrealness of, my God, we're acting this out. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a weird mix of surreal and sacred, I would say. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a, like, sometimes I like to tell the story sort of bit through, um, you know, the, the uh, photographs in Back to the Future. Yes, I do, I do, yeah. And uh, We've got to be careful we don't go down a Back to the Future rabbit hole. No, 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 no. wait, wait, wait. <laughs> so I kind of had the sort of like the opposite version of that photograph, right? Where at the beginning, there are all these like iconic images of Diana and Dodie that for me are the same mm. as they are to everyone else, right? They're just mm. these images that I'm familiar with. And then gradually with time as we continue filming, I'm like, Oh yeah, I, I remember that place. Oh yeah, I've, I've been there. Oh, I remember what it feels like to wear those glasses. I remember what it yeah, feels yeah. like to be in the car with the banging on the window. And suddenly, gradually, all these iconic images become part of my family album. They're things that I've mm. lived, right? To the point that even like from the corner of my eye, I'm like, wait, which one's Diana? <laughs> There's this, wow. fu <laughs> there's this funny moment uh, two thirds of the way through filming where um, Elizabeth uh, turns to me, we're in the car and she's like, I have to tell you Khaled, you look so much like Dodie. And, I, and I'm like to her, this is completely ridiculous coming from you. You know, we're literally in yeah. Barcelona at that point and there are crowds that have come because they know that we're filming and they just want to see the aura of Diana. And, and, and Elizabeth sticks her hand out and they all go, wow. I mean, God, the other one was also entering the recreation of, of the space at the back of the Ritz because that doesn't exist at the Ritz anymore. They've changed it since renovated, oh, right? Okay. And to actually walk into that space and be in it exactly made exactly wow. I mean it you know it, it haunts spine tingling but that goes alongside all of the deeper senses of responsibility that have come with doing this and on the one side yeah. the painstaking attention to detail which tethers you but then the other the kind of love and dignity and attempt to, to honour what happened in how you approach them as characters and how you approach that time. That, that's something that was so clear in the dynamic and the collaboration between me and Elizabeth and what we were trying to do. And, you know, for me personally, the kind of weight of responsibility, I, you know, Dodie is this person who, despite the fact that he's been on supermarket shelves and magazines and, and on the periphery of vision for 26 years, no one really knows anything about him unless they've seen, you know, until they've seen some of the crown, right? There's a question, which is why, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, one of the things that makes me proudest about this is that finally, after 26 years, Dodie is known a little, hopefully loved a little. And mm -hmm. so then when he dies, finally, after 26 years, mourn. Yeah, I, you see, I was going to say to you, in a way, he's like, this is the wrong phrase, but the nothing man in all this, or, or like the second astronaut to walk on the moon after Armstrong, and that all the attention went to Diana at the time, and I have vivid memories of that, and, and I was 
18, I think, at the time. And this almost on the periphery, who was the other guy in the car with her? So it's 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 very heartfelt to hear you say that, that you were trying to bring him, you know, for want of a better phrase, back to life. Well, and, and, and in doing so, you for me, that kind of dignifies all of us, mm. right? Because sure. there is no one on this earth especially if you're going to make a film or something, you know, but there is no one, if you're going to tell their story, who does not deserve to be known and mourned, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And being given yeah. the, the size of that. And, and, and you know, it's something I, in the context of everything else going on in the world, the, the, you know, the question sort of hit me in the stomach and I suddenly went, how many films can I think of in the history of cinema on this side of the world in which there is an Arab character who is known and then loved, and if they die, mourned. And I can barely think of any, right? So few, despite yeah. the context of the number of wars and millions who have died and been killed over the course of my lifetime, let alone my parents and grandparents, right? Mm -hmm. And that says a lot about our cultural and political imaginary. But somehow I feel I owe a debt of gratitude to Diana. Because I feel that the way that she looked at people mm. was through the light that shines inside them, not the color of their skin or sure. their status. And there is some yeah. peculiar through line for me from the dignity of that gaze looking at people through to what happens in this season where finally you, you get to mourn Dodie, you get to see them in their fullness. Yeah, it makes it one of the great honors of my life to have been, to have been yeah, part of Yeah, well, very well said. Can I ask you, I, I asked Elizabeth something about Ireland because her mother's of Irish heritage, and I didn't think I would be with you. However, I was going through, once again, your Wikipedia page, yeah. it's rarely wrong. And it seems that Irish dramatists played a big enough part in your college acting life. You directed Frank McGuinness's Someone Who'll Watch yeah, Over Me, absolutely. and you were in Enda Walsh's Bedbound. Does Wikipedia the first have that play, The first play I did ever was Observe the Sons of Ulster Marching Towards the Sun, Frank McGuinness. Ah, okay, right. But actually, beyond all of that, the first place where my parents went uh, after... Um, so my father and grandfather were political prisoners, and uh, my father ended up with my mother. They ended up going to Iraq in 1975, and then, mm -hmm. without going into the details, for political reasons, they couldn't return to Egypt. First place they went before I was then born in Glasgow was Dublin. They studied in Dublin uh, for a okay. year. Did they get a nice reception there? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's a huge, it's like these, you know, the fact that like, like the fact that being born in Scotland lives in my life, you know, them, the first place that they live in on this side of the world being Dublin lives in theirs, you know? Yeah, okay, okay. Well, listen, uh, we're out of time. Uh, it was lovely to talk to you, and uh, you, you did a terrific job in, in The Crown. So nice to meet you and continued Likewise. success. Thank you. Khalid Abdallah there, the actor who plays Dodie Fayed. So that's about it for The Crown for now. We uh, brought you three long interviews. The new season, as I say, is on Netflix. You know, for those of you who don't like The Crown, 
this isn't going to convince you because it's more of the same. And it might, might even annoy you more because it intrudes further into the lives of the royals. If you love the crown, you will love this season because it is all the things you expect from the crown. Very high production values, very well acted. It is a soap opera. It is fictionalized. But I think you know that's what you're getting with the crown. And as I say, it's all there on Netflix now. And the final part is coming in December, the final part of season five. Now, after the break, we go to the cinema for the week's new releases in the company of Chris Wasser. Now you're welcome back to the last part of Screen Time and much later than usual in the show are the week's new cinema releases. We had a bit of a royal flush this week so normal service was slightly suspended. However, Chris Wasser, arts critic and film critic is here to talk about the new Barry Keoghan movie, Saltburn, and as quickly as he can, (laughs) the new Todd Haynes movie, May, December. Chris, hello sir, how are you? John, I'm very happy to be here. You see, I've already put you under your starting orders, telling yeah. you, look, we're, we're tied for time this week. <laughs> well, listen, Saltburn, you know, Barry Keoghan, in a way, is like Paul Meskel in that it's kind of an event now when, you know, he's in a movie. Everyone gets kind of excited by it because we're so keen to see how he is. At least that's my take on it. So what's Saltburn about? Well, I mean, if anyone's familiar with Brideshead Revisited, it's sort of Emerald Fennel's version of Brideshead Revisited. Although I should add, it is an original story. And it does star, it does star Barry Keoghan as a young chap named Oliver Quick. He is uh, a little bit of a loner, doesn't want to be. Uh, working class kids, um, a little bit out of place and struggling to find, you know, his himself and also, you know, his circle of friends at Oxford University. He's there in a scholarship program. In his first few weeks, he's kind of befriending, you know, some of the quirky oddballs, but he always has his eye on the rich kids, you know, and all, all, all across the room, across the, uh, the, the dining table. He wants in. He want, you know, he's, he's very much seduced by that lifestyle. He's admiring it from afar and he doesn't know how to catch their attention because as I said, he's just this, you know, he's this poor kid from Liverpool to, to catch their attention. It's actually a random act of kindness, uh, where he lends his bicycle to this, you know, handsome troublemaker named Felix Catton, played by Jacob Elordi. And Felix just can't believe that someone would be as nice as Oliver is. So they start hanging out. They start learning a bit about one another. One thing leads to another. And Felix invites Oliver to spend the summer at his uh, at his family's palatial mansion, which is called Saltburn. And if you're wondering what this place is like, it's probably exactly what you're thinking. It's ghastly. It's soulless. It's a place where, you know, common decency goes to die. And it's full of horrible, horrible rich people who are disgustingly proud of their of their of their wealth um so that's basically the setup that oliver has to basically you know uh he 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 steps into a life that he knows nothing about and he spends this summer with this chap named felix yeah and it's funny it's very brideshead revisited as oh, you yeah. say and it's also very secret history by donna Tart, the secret history but i think that you could argue that that was not a rip-off but a pastiche of brideheads but anyway that notwithstanding it is an original story and all so first of all i have to fly the irish flag uh is barry keoghan setting the world on fire here he, he's setting the world around them on fire here he is terrific um now there look barry keoghan wasn't cast in this film to play you know just a, a regular nice guy who wonders what it might be like to hang out with the rich kids um i'm not going to spoil any twists and turns that you know take place in the second half of this film but you are always thinking is he showing us his full hand here you know is it does he have some secrets of his own and steadily emerald fennel the filmmaker the writer and director the academy award-winning writer and director of this you know she does kind of you know reveal what 
you know, his intentions are. And that's where Barry Kogan kind of really, you know, impresses us. You know, he's quite, uh, he's quite tricksy at times. He's quite mischievous. He's a little bit sneaky. Um, it's a brilliant performance. And also there are brilliant performance performers around them. Jacob Elordi is not an actor whose work I was all that familiar with before, before this, but we're going to see him next playing, uh, uh, another Elvis Presley in, uh, Sofia Coppola's, um, uh, Priscilla. He's very mm-hmm. good as Felix. We've got Richard E. Grant playing his dad, Richard E. Grant, kind of doing what he always does, which is walking <laughs> into a room, saying everything in, in that comical, exaggerated way and walking out and he's just stole, stole the entire scene. We, yeah. have Carrie, we have Carrie Mulligan in there. We've got Alison Oliver, a wonderful actor from Cork. They're all playing Felix's family. I'm getting to the standout performer of the film. I know I should be saying Barry Keoghan, but John, Rosamund Pike in this thing is sensational. Right. She's she a great is- actress. She is the best she's been here, and she is cast as Felix's just outrageously rude mother, and who just okay. kind of pretends to care about the little person and pretends to care about people who are, you know, not as well off about her, but just comes across so patronizing, always condescending, but always very funny. I mean, you you you're you're kicking yourself for laughing at the things that she's saying, but her comic timing is just delightful. Uh, you know, the the faces that she pulls, and again, like Richard E. Grant, just walks into a scene and just pulls the rug from everyone else. And the whole time I was thinking this, it is a bit early to be kind of guessing these things, maybe not, but I would not be surprised to see Rosamund Pike's name doing the rounds during award season. Right, okay. Now, you alluded to a gear change, and I haven't seen this one, but I've, I've watched a few bits about it and read a bit. And I gather there is a significant gear change, and without saying anything about what that gear change is, does it work? I mean, does the whole movie work? I'll tell you this much. For the first hour, John, I, I I liked this film a lot. I had great fun with it. Um, it is quite difficult to love because you're dealing with characters who are irredeemably awful. But you know that's that's not to say that we can't enjoy watching them. But they're you mm-hmm. know some of them are are difficult to root for. But it is quite lively. It's ambitious. There are some great ideas in there. But something happens in the second era where I just kept thinking, wow, I haven't seen a film spoil itself like this in a long time. And it just collapses in on itself. And what the problem is is that you you have half a great you have a great cast. You have a great filmmaker. I love Promising a Woman, Emerald Fennell's yeah. uh, uh, previous film. Fantastic, you, yeah. You have half a great screenplay. And though it all kind of promises to kind of just descend into chaos, and it does exactly that, it's sort of a, a convoluted chaos where there are, just, there are just one too many twists, one too many silly turns. Uh, you know, the film just explains itself and explains what's happening and explains its twists so poorly that just because yeah i get it you you can show us it you don't need to tell us it and it just keeps going okay. John, as well it actually it, it it comes in at two hours and 11 minutes i think but it actually felt and we've had some very long films recently that we reviewed on the show it actually felt longer than those so i think it just overextends itself uh it gets a little bit clumsy and it's such a shame and also we should mention there are some very awkward sex scenes in this film and okay. and maybe one or two of them will be fine. It, it starts to get a little bit weird. It starts to feel like as though Emerald Fennel is and and the cast are kind of pushing. Oh, how weirder can we can we push this? How okay? You know, and and it's just it it just gets a little bit boring. Okay, okay, yeah. Weird sex is like that. It's. It's great for a while and then you just, you know, you get bored of it or, or so I've been told. Okay, so this collapses in on itself slightly. It so what are you going to say stars-wise for Saltburn, which is in cinemas from this Friday, the 17th of November? I will say it's a great film until it isn't. It's still, it's still you know, a lot more watchable and enjoyable, and especially in that first half than a lot of films that are out at the moment. So mm-hmm. we'll go with three. I will say approach okay. caution. I will say enjoy the first half, but you will see what I mean. It just, again, collapses in itself. Okay. Now, people 
People in the movie business say that people like me and you are obsessed with accents. But in a word, is Barry Keoghan's Liverpoolian accent okay in this? It's fine. Okay, okay. <laughs> Let's move fine, on <laughs> with a quick clip from Saltburn. Daddy always said I'd end up at the bottom of the Thames. So far, so good. I don't know what I'd do without Elsbeth. She really saved me. Don't bang on about it, Pamela, darling. You know we're delighted to have you for however long it is you mean to stay. Forever? Oh, no, I, I think I might have um, found somewhere. Oh, well done, darling. Mm. Yeah, my cousin. My cousin has a flat. Oh, that'll suit you very well. A nice little flat. It's more of a more of a bedsit, really. I love living in a bedsit in my 20s. It's so freeing to live all in one room. And much less cleaning to do. Mm. Oh, but it'll be terrible when you're gone. How will I cope? Well, I... I, I could actually stay for a little no. bit longer. Oh, no, darling, no. You must be desperate to be rid of us and find your own place. I quite understand. That was a clip from the aforementioned Saltburn starring our own Barry Keoghan. Chris Wasser gave it three. I had higher hopes, but I haven't seen it. But uh, I think we all did. But but three is okay. And he did say the first part is better than a lot of other movies. Now, listen, Todd Haynes, again, you know, a bit, maybe I'm stretching the analogy, but Tom Hay- Todd Haynes has made some great movies. So there are a lot of people of a certain persuasion would go and see any Todd Haynes movie. So we don't have a huge amount of time, but tell me quickly what's happening in his new one, May, December. What's happening is we have a popular actress portrayed by Natalie Portman. Her name is Elizabeth. And she is a hit on daytime television, but she's hoping to win a claim and to kind of move into the, you know, into cinema by portraying this controversial figure. Uh, her name is Gracie. She's played by Julianne Moore. And Elizabeth goes to live with Gracie. You know, she invites herself into her home, into her wider circle of family and friends. It's all part of her research. And she asks all these tricky questions. And, and, and when nobody's watching, you know, she's constantly mimicking and in some cases mo- mo- mocking her subject because she wants to get this part right here's the difficult thing the woman that natalie portman's character is portraying is a registered sex offender and this story kind of you know very loosely uh takes inspiration from a real life case involving a woman named mary kate letourneau who was this washington-based school teacher she seduced i'm not sure if that's the right word in this context and subsequently married one of her students and it was just a, a national scandal now this is very much a work of fiction and it and it removes the school te- teacher thing it imagines gracie as a character who worked in a pet store with this child and then you know a, a an affair if again if we can call it that ensued between them and all these years later they had children and they married so that's the sort of characters we're dealing with we're dealing with this fictional actress who wants to play this fictional character in the film and goes to live with her and brings up all of these weird things about their past it sounds very serious john but todd hayes isn't is you know he's a playful experimental filmmaker and what he does is he applies this um sort of heightened melodrama and soapy element to proceedings and he creates something that's a little bit like a satire a little bit like a Mm. black comedy and though it sounds like it shouldn't work and i mean with another filmmaker it might not have I really enjoyed this. It works okay. very well. And I think it works very well because of those performers I mentioned and also Charles Melton. So Portman, Moore, Todd Haynes, it's a cracker. Yeah. And so, you know, he, he and I think I said it to him when I interviewed him a few years ago, his obsession in a way is looking behind the white picket fences yes, of yep. America. That's here in spades, albeit in a funny way, it seems. Absolutely. Yeah. And also you have that thing where you've got two gifted actresses. Uh, aside from the fact that it's always a joy to watch a gifted actor play an actor trying to act that's always kind of a tricky role <laughs> yeah. uh, it's it's even better to see two characters uh, uh to see two gr- great actors play play characters that are messy and that you know are flawed and that are just impossible to to to, to, to like a little bit like what i was saying about saltborn where you have these horrible characters it's it's fun but with this it's it's just an excellent character study it's like we know that one person is just 
not a great human being, but we weren't expecting the other person to, you know, also have some serious flaws. So it's very fun. Uh, it's it's quite dark. It's quite playful. Um, yeah, I, ha- I had a great time with it. Yeah. Okay. So stars wise then, what are you going to say for May, December? I'm going to go with four stars for May, December. Yeah. And I should say as well, it's go- it's in cinemas and then it's going to be on Sky Cinema as well. So you can watch it on okay. the big screen or the small screen. Well, listen, May, December has it by a star on this week's uh, new movie releases. For May, December, Chris Wasser gives it four and it's three for Saulborn. Chris, thanks a million. Thanks a million, John. Chris Wasser there chatting briefly about May, December, the new Todd Haynes movie, and before that, Saltburn, both of which are in cinemas from this Friday, the 17th of November. That is it for this week. I just want to remind you this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5 p.m. on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6 p.m. here on News Talk. Next week on the show, there's a fascinating new Ronnie O'Sullivan documentary coming to Amazon next week, and I'm going to be talking to the director of that, Steve Wall from The Stunning. He's also a fine actor, and he's in a new Oscar long-listed short film, uh, which he's going to be talking to me all about, called Two for the Road, and loads more besides. So until then, enjoy the remainder of your weekend, have a safe week ahead, and I'll talk to you all next week.